We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews and the 8th chapter, the book of Hebrews and the 8th chapter. So we continue our verse-by-verse series through the book of Hebrews. This morning I'll be preaching on verses 10 through 13. That's Hebrews chapter 8. Verses 10 through 13. I invite you to read along silently as I read aloud this morning. Beginning here in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. For God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace this morning, for your kind providence in bringing us here to hear your word proclaimed. And we would ask now for the work of the Holy Spirit that he would do that work that only he as the sovereign spirit can do, that he would grant us an understanding of this text and help us to apply it in such a way that our thinking is renewed and transformed and our conduct is conformed after the image of the Lord Jesus Christ who calls us to himself and to a life of holiness. So we ask now for the work of the spirit among us In Jesus' name, amen. Brethren, the theme of this eighth chapter of the book of Hebrews is Christ and the new covenant. Christ and the new covenant. For this chapter, in this chapter, the writer points to the fact that Christ has brought us something that is far better. Far better. And namely, he has brought us a covenant with God that is far better than anything that God's people lived under since the fall of Adam. In fact, as we considered last week, it is far better than what God's people experienced under the old covenant. For the old covenant had its faults, and it could not produce nor maintain the life and the relationship with God that God had designed for his people to live under. For the old covenant, as we saw back in verses 8 and 9 of Hebrews chapter 8, was faulty in a number of very important and relevant respects. Number one, the old covenant was faulty because it was not a redemptive covenant. It was not a redemptive covenant. It made no mention of redemption or of 
a redeemer. Then secondly, the old covenant was intended to educate rather than to liberate. It was intended to educate rather than to liberate. Or in other words, it was intended to show the people their sin. And it did that quite well and continues to do that quite well as it is preached today. But it offers no power from that sin. The Old Covenant served as a tutor or as a schoolmaster, as we read this morning, to show the people their need of a Savior, but it could not give the people the ability to trust Christ, for only the Holy Spirit can do that. Then thirdly, the Old Covenant was intended to guide people, to guide God's people in particular, in their spiritual infancy to guide God's people in their spiritual infancy and to do so with strictness and close supervision. In fact, verse 9 states that God used it to lead the people by the hand. And take note of that expression, when you lead a child by the hand, you understand that that child can easily stray, that child needs constant guidance and supervision. In fact, there was very little spiritual liberty under the Old Covenant. What really mattered was law-keeping. And those who refused to live under the law were often punished severely. In fact, you remember from your reading of the Old Testament yourself that in some cases to violate the law of God would mean the sentence of death. Fourthly, the Old Covenant was a covenant that could be broken. The Old Covenant was a covenant that could be broken, and the people broke and violated the Old Covenant throughout their history, and they suffered the consequences for it. In fact, in many respects, the Old Testament is just a chronology, a, a history of how Israel repeatedly violated its covenant obligations to the Lord and how they suffered the consequences of that. Fifthly, the people and their failure to keep the old covenant also experienced the loss of God's immediate and temporal blessings. For when God's people persisted in their unfaithfulness, God would withdraw his favor from them. And there were times, according to the end of Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 9, when, a Lord, when the Lord appeared to show no concern for his people whatsoever. Now, it doesn't mean that he did not show any concern for them, but it appeared clearly because of the disobedience of the people that the Lord did not appear to show concern for them. And so under the old covenant, there was a constant reminder of sin and failure. There was the constant threat of law and judgment. There were times when the people were brought extremely low and God seemed extremely far away. In fact, there was a certain fear and uncertainty that was associated with the Old Covenant that made that time in history very difficult to bear up under. It was a difficult time. 
to live under the old covenant. Now, of course, this is not to suggest that there was an absence of true faith during the old covenant or that there were not times of deep spiritual vitality among some of God's people. There are some remarkable evidences of the grace of God at work in God's people in the Old Testament. In fact, when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, which Alan, by the way, will be leading us through in a number of months here, we will see the grace of God working among God's people in a remarkable way, even though the people lived under the strictness of the law, because the Spirit of God was at work in the Old Testament as well as he is at work in the New Testament. However, under the Old Testament, there was a far more limited scale when it comes to the Spirit's operation than what we see now under the Gospel and the New Covenant. And yet the good news of Jeremiah 31, which we referred to last Sunday, and I'm going to refer to it again here this morning, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, which the writer is quoting from here in Hebrews chapter 8, is that better days were coming, and these better days have already arrived under the greater mediatorship of Jesus Christ. And with his arrival as our great high priest and our mediator, Jesus Christ has ushered in a, a better covenant, a new covenant which God promised to his captive and oppressed people years ago. Of course, the primary message here in Hebrews chapter 8 is that the new covenant has arrived. Hear me, it has arrived. That which was promised so long ago, that which the people of God longed for and prayed for, it has arrived. And we who are called by the Spirit to faith in Jesus Christ are now living under that gracious covenant. Because we are living under it, we should know the nature of it, right? We should know how it is better than the old covenant, which the houses of Israel and Judah lived under. We should know the blessings and the privileges that come to us because of this new covenant. Because being a Christian under the new covenant is a great honor. It's a great honor. It's a great privilege. With it comes great joy. With it comes great freedom to be experienced if we understand how it operates. In fact, I would suggest to you, in a very practical sense, some believers today try to live as though it were still the old covenant and do not understand nor enjoy the blessings of knowing that they live under a different and better covenant because of Christ, and that being the new covenant which Jesus Christ brought in and instituted. And how does Christ lead us under the new covenant? What are his gracious dealings with us under the new covenant or under the power of the gospel? What is it like? Well, this is where the writer of this epistle now takes us in verses 10 through 13 of Hebrews chapter 8, for he writes here, 
beginning in verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And so what happens under the new covenant is, is the Lord's doing. Note that. This is what I will do. This is the covenant that I will make to bless the people. This is how I will ensure that my favor and blessings are upon the people, even though they have repeatedly failed to keep their covenant agreement. The focus of the new covenant is on what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. What the Lord Jesus Christ has done. If you're attending a congregation that is not focusing on what the Lord Jesus Christ has done primarily, you are not involved in a ministry that is geared toward and focused upon the new covenant. You need to be under new covenant preaching under the gospel. The focus of the new covenant is on what the Lord has done. He is the one who took the initiative to establish a, a new covenant that would supersede the old covenant. He is the one who instituted the new covenant and gave it its authority. And therefore, everything that we will read about here down through verse 13, the Lord has done. The Lord has done it all. We should acknowledge this from the very start. None of these blessings that we receive under the new covenant could be earned by us. None of them. In fact, you and I did not and do not possess the power or the righteousness necessary to acquire any of these blessings. Rather, all of these blessings are acquired through the work of Jesus Christ. All of them are applied to us by the mighty work of the Holy Spirit. That needs to be said up front. That context needs to be established. What does Christ as the mediator of the new covenant, as the dispenser of the Holy Spirit, do for his people in the new covenant that is in all respects better than what God's people experienced under the old covenant? Well, notice here under our text this morning, again, verses 10 through 12 of Hebrews 8, that Christ does three things. Three things. These may seem to be very simple, but they are very profound in light of of how the people lived under the old covenant. Number one, under the new covenant, Christ changes our relationship to the law. Under the new covenant, Christ changes our relationship to the law. For you'll remember that the law was given under the old covenant so that God's people would come to a knowledge of their sins, which was and is a good thing. To have a knowledge of our sins. And yet with this knowledge of the content of the law came an awareness on the part of the people that they could not keep the law. And once the people came under the condemnation of the law, they began to internally rebel against the law. Of course, we read about the tension between the law of God and the hard-heartedness of the people all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Covenant. For under the Old Covenant, the battle between the external demands of the law and the internal resistance 
of the depraved human heart is clearly evident. For while the people possessed the law, they did not rejoice in the law. They hated the law apart from the work of the Holy Spirit upon their hearts. But now the writer of this epistle, quoting the prophet Jeremiah here in verse 10, reveals to us that under the new covenant, the relationship of God's people to the law of God is radically different. Radically different. There has been a radical change and a radical change for the better. For whereas the law of God was once considered by the people to be oppressive an external force. Now the law of God is something that is internal and something that causes every true believer to rejoice. To rejoice. Why has this change occurred? Well, the writer tells us here in verse 10 that it, it's changed because Christ through the Holy Spirit has now put his law in us, in us, not upon us, not working against us, but in us. For we read here in verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And so rather than having the law of God as an external force that we inwardly resist, we now have the law of God as an internal force that we willingly follow and comply with. Now we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 119 and verse 97, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my delight. How I delight in your word. That was not the case of unregenerate men. And those who did not have the operation of the Spirit within their hearts. From the moment that we were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, God powerfully placed his moral law into our minds or into our understanding in a way that it did not exist before. So that now our minds and our thoughts delight in the law of God. The psalmist said, it is my meditation day and night rather than warring against the law. Now we understand the beauty and the majesty of the law. We see that the law is a good thing, a glorious thing. We want to live under it. We want it to change us. We want it to conform us. From the moment we were regenerated, God wrote and engraved his word upon our hearts so that we would love and adore his law rather than set our hearts and our affections against his law. For those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit have a new and intense devotion to God's law. Rather than seeing the law as an oppressive thing that restricts and confines their liberty, they see the law of God as something that actually gives them Liberty. What a radical change. In fact, James refers to the law of God, to the moral law in James chapter 1 and verse 25 as that perfect law of what? Liberty. The law of liberty. 
There is liberty. There is freedom in the obedience of the law. It is that law, that wisdom and peace that comes down from on high. And so the first benefit or blessing that the people of God, that you and I as Christ's people receive under the new covenant as opposed to the old covenant are new minds and new hearts. New thoughts and new affections, minds that are open, minds that are receptive to the teachings of God's word, new hearts that are eager and willing to obey the law of God. For under the new covenant, we not only see a place for the law, but we also receive a new ability through the spirit to joyfully receive the law and obey it joyfully receive the law and to obey it. And I ask all of us this morning, does this describe us? Have we experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in such a way that these new covenant realities are ours? They're evident in our lives. The law of God is upon our mind. The law of God is upon our thoughts. It is guiding us. It is our rule. It is the light on our path. And the law of God is in our heart. We rejoice in it. Our affections are drawn to it. We are not warring against it internally. We are not resisting it. But we desire for the law of God to have its work. To have its work to show us Christ. Does that describe us? If it doesn't, if it doesn't, then we need to examine our own hearts by the grace of God. Has the Spirit of God regenerated us and transformed us or not? Then secondly, under the new covenant, Christ gives his people an assurance, an assurance of their acceptance and standing with God. An assurance of their acceptance and standing with God that the old covenant could not provide. For you'll recall, I mentioned this last Sunday. Under the old covenant, there was always a sense of uncertainty due to sin. You never knew what the extent of sin would be. You never knew what the extent of your own sin would be. You never knew what the consequences of that would be in some cases temporally. People of God never knew with absolute assurance whether they would be enjoying the favor and acceptance of God or not. Remember, I stressed that last Sunday. Sometimes the people of God did, did not know if they would have the blessing of God upon them or, or not. They, they would have to inquire of the Lord. Are we going to have your blessing today when we go into battle or are we not going to have your blessing today? There was that sense of boding uncertainty they didn't know with absolute assurance those things. And yet under the new covenant, under Christ as our covenant mediator and head, the people of God always know, should know with certainty that they are fully accepted, that their covenant status is never in jeopardy. For we read in verse 10 as well that God declares over his people, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And of course, this is rich covenantal language. Covenantal language. This language harkens back to the language of other places in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, like Exodus chapter 6 and verse 7, Leviticus 
chapter 26 and verse 12 where similar statements are made, if not the same statement. But here it is given with a renewed and grander emphasis in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10. For here the emphasis is upon the words I and my. I and my. Under the new covenant it is God himself who is pledging to be our God. God is pledging to be our God and his pledge is without condition. And it is God who is also expressing his willingness to claim us as his own possession, as his own people. And with respect to the new covenant, let us notice beginning here in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 8, that God declares that his pledge and commitment will be carried out in forming a community that truly knows him. His pledge would be carried out in forming a community that truly knows him. Under the old covenant, there were individuals who were a part of the covenant community of God who were not true believers. And this is because membership in the old covenant was defined by physical circumcision and not by the circumcision of the heart. And those individuals had to be exhorted to follow the Lord. And there were many who did not follow the Lord. And there were many who perished. There were many who, who fell in the wilderness, to use scriptural language. But, but here in verse 11, God declares that under his covenant, under the new covenant, such a situation would not exist. Such a situation would not exist for all who are his by divine election will be brought to spiritual life. All who are a part of the new covenant, whether they are a person of great standing or a person of lowly standing, will possess an intimate knowledge of God. In fact, this is the gift of God under the new covenant, the true knowledge of God. And once a person possesses this knowledge, he or she is no longer outside of the covenant, but they are and will always be a member of the covenant. And as a, a member of the covenant, they do not need the assurance that they belong to God from others, nor do they need to be evangelized. Notice verse 11. We read, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And so the kind of covenant community that existed within the old covenant where saved and unsaved were both considered to be a, excuse me, under the old covenant were both Saved and unsaved were considered to be a part of the covenant community. That does not exist under the new covenant. For the knowledge of God is the gift that separates the true covenant members from those who are not. And if a person knows the Lord in the sense that this knowledge is described here in verse 10, there is no need to exhort them as we would a non-believer. And of course, this is one aspect of the new covenant that truly separates it from the old covenant. For the new covenant community consists of those whom God has called 
through the knowledge of himself. And they can be assured, we can be assured that we who are chosen will be called. And it will not depend upon our efforts to teach or to persuade others, although we are often called to do so regarding the unsaved, but to know with certainty that those who are chosen by God will be called to himself and be a part of that community forever. Thirdly, under the new covenant, God's people have the profound promise that they can never break or violate the terms of God's covenant with them. They can never break or violate the terms of God's covenant with them. For you'll recall that the old covenant could be broken or violated and the, the people of God could lose their assurance of God's favor and forgiveness as well as suffer many temporal punishments. And yet under the new covenant, these fears are entirely done away with because the blessings of the new covenant are, are not conditioned upon our obedience the blessings of the new covenant are not conditioned upon our perfect compliance to the law. Aren't you glad to hear that? We should be. All the conditions of the new covenant have been perfectly fulfilled. And they've been fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ and his atoning work. Christ's work, not our work, not what I have done with my hands or what you have done with your hands guarantees us this future, but what Christ has done guarantees us a state of mercy and forgiveness. But we read here in verse 12, Christ declares under the new covenant, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And so rather than laboring and agonizing over the question of whether we can be forgiven, we need to be comforted with the knowledge that we already are forgiven through Jesus Christ. Our sins will never be remembered by God. Our sins will not be held against us ever again. For once again, the blessings that we receive under the new covenant are not contingent upon, they are not conditioned upon our faithfulness or upon our obedience. They are grounded in Christ's faithfulness and obedience, and Christ's work and mediatorship cannot fail. In fact, this is the good news of this letter. Christ has done it all as our high priest and mediator. And so what we can say about the old covenant, now that we have a better understanding of what was accomplished by Christ under the new covenant, is the following. Based upon the conclusions of verse 13, number one, we can see that there is no need for the old covenant anymore. There is no need for the old covenant anymore. And by the way, we don't have a sense of this in our own day being Gentiles. But can you imagine how radical this kind of conclusion would be to a Jew? There's no need for the old covenant anymore. 
For as the writer states here at the beginning of verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete or no longer necessary. For why would anyone want to turn back to the old covenant when the new covenant has superseded it and so many of the conditional aspects of the old covenant have been done away with entirely? Why go back to something that is faulty? And listen, this is a major comment or conclusion and question in this book. Why go back? Why go back to something that's faulty? Why go back to something that no longer applies? To something that has no application anymore? Why go back? Why be tempted to go back to something that's insufficient? When you can follow Christ and rest in his pledges and his promises of acceptance and forgiveness for believers instead. Then lastly, we can see that there is no need for the old covenant anymore. Secondly, because a new age has already dawned. A new age has already dawned. In fact, we read this here in the writer's closing thoughts at the end of verse 13. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. For the writer of this letter could already see and sense the greater effects of the new covenant in his day. He could see it in the lives that were being changed. He could see it. And if he could see the superior and better nature of the new covenant over the old covenant in his day, how much more can we see it in our day? In fact, it's crystal clear to us now that the old covenant was made obsolete simply by following the events that took place even after this letter was written because it was after this letter was written notice the writer is saying that they're ready to vanish away after this letter was written the Romans came into Jerusalem in 70 AD and under General Titus they destroyed Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. And upon destroying the temple of the Jews, there was no longer a place for the Jews to make their sacrifices. The old covenant was done away with. The sacrificial system was gone. So the writer could say, it's ready to vanish away but within his lifetime and a short time after, it was so evident that it had vanished away that a person could see it with their plain eyes. And we can still see that today powerfully so. How much more can we see it in our day? And especially as we look back, as I said, over the centuries since Christ, and we can observe not only that the temple was destroyed, but we can observe how the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed everything. Everything. A new age came in. A new day dawned. Surely the impact of the new covenant under Christ has been far more than the writer of the book of Hebrews could have ever imagined. Could have ever imagined. And is far more impactful than you and I now realize that it is. 
a new covenant issued in, issue, ushered in, excuse me, issued by and ushered in by Jesus Christ has changed everything. Everything. And so may we look to Jesus Christ and to his covenant as the great gift of God to us that it is. Given all this information, brethren, hear this message. Let us not be tempted to go back. Let us not be tempted to go back to think as they thought in the old covenant, to fear as they thought in the old covenant, to live in uncertainty as they lived in under the old covenant, but rather to live with the assurance and the peace and the joy that comes with living under the new covenant of God. What a blessing to be a new covenant believer. What a blessing to have Christ as our mediator, having secured everything for us. May we rejoice. May we love his law. May we love Christ more. May we do all things for his glory. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the privilege to proclaim this message. I have a privilege today as a minister of the gospel to proclaim a message that is far greater than any message that could have been preached by a servant of God under the old covenant. And I'm not worthy and deserving of such a privilege, nor is any man who preaches the gospel today. And yet, this is the privilege that I have and countless others have had and still have to proclaim the nature of the new covenant and the blessings that God has given us under the new covenant. And Father, I pray that what I have stated today in the awkward ways that I have sometimes stated it, it may be not as clear as it needed to be. I pray that you would use it in such a way to create praise among your people for the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done. Thank you for the privilege of living under the new covenant today. Thank you that we are not attached to or dependent upon in any sense to the old. We are not being tormented in any sense under the new covenant, but we live in the joy and peace that comes through a relationship, a true saving relationship with the Lord Jesus. So bless us as your people. Strengthen us in grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.